0: So I want to start off with uh, the introduction, and I want to start off with a um, question. It says, in a day when pragmatism rules and reigns, the questions are often this. What can he or she do for me? That's a lot of times you hear around the world and around just your workplace, your home place. Everywhere you're around, you ask, what can he or she do for me? Or you might ask, what have you done for me lately? You might ask someone, you know, your wife to your husband, your husband to your wife, your kids, your friends, you know, your your family. You might ask, what have you done for me lately? Those questions focus on utility, performance, and a means to an end. Sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, those questions enter into the spiritual realm and almost arrogantly are thrust before God. As if he were our servant and obligated to meet our needs and respond to our call whenever we want. God, do this for me. God, do that for me. Okay, God, tell me, what have you done for me lately or ever? What has God done for us? That's, sometimes that's how we look at things, don't we? As human beings? Or is it just me? <laughs> Amazingly, in the incarnation and in the sending of His Son, the Lord Jesus, God answers our questions. God does serve us. It's a true statement. God does serve us. He does minister to us. He he even sacrifices Himself for us on the cross. Amen? Isn't that awesome that He has done that for us? And many recognize that the key verse that summarizes the Gospel of Mark and the ministry of Jesus is found in Mark ten forty five. If you guys want to go there, Mark ten forty five. And we'll be we'll go into the text right now, but Mark ten forty five is a is a summary of, of the gospel of Mark, of what we're learning here in our church. We're going verse by verse. Chapter by chapter. <clears throat> Are we there in Mark chapter ten, verse forty five? All oh, here in a man. Like you guys are awake. Amen. Amen. All right. So it says in Mark 10:45, "For the son of man came not <clears throat> to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." Again, for the son of man, Jesus Christ came not to be served. But to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Isn't that amazing? Amen? Amen? The giving of His life as a ransom, as a payment for sin, will occur on the cross. His service to wounded and helpless sinners like you and like me would be characteristic of His ministry from the, its beginning to its end. As an as exemplification or as an example, of this particular day in the life of Jesus, Mark presents the events of in, in verse chapter one, verse twenty-one through thirty-eight as a one day in the life of Jesus, and that's the title of the message: One Day in the Life of Jesus. He does so with five uses in his favorite word. We hear the word immediately, 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 with the sense of mission and urgency. Jesus here. And he is there ministering to this one and then to this one another. He truly is the servant of the Lord, healing the physically sick and setting the free spiritual prisoners held captive by the prince of darkness and his demonic hordes. So let's get into the text. If you're able, please stand up for the reading of God's Word. And we're in chapter 1. we're going to be reading verse 29. And it says, As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in the bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So when he went to her, he took her by the hand and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. When evening came, and after the sun had set, they brought, him to, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and drove out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you, Lord, to bless our time this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us through your Holy Word, Lord, that we would be encouraged, Lord, to know that Jesus, Lord, cares about us and about about even the minimal things, Lord, that happen to us, Lord. He loves us. He cares about us and that we would just, Lord, be encouraged, Lord, the love that you have for us and that we would exemplify that love back towards you by the way you served us, Lord. We would serve other people and we would serve you, Lord. And we bless you. We bless you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our church here at Acts Reform Fellowship for one year, Lord. We've been here preaching the gospel, Lord, and just being a light to our community, Lord. So just be uh, use use this word today, Lord, to speak to us in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. So, what can Jesus do for you, or for me? What can Jesus do for us? much more than we have ever hoped or or imagined he has already done for us. So let's start with the first part of it. And it says, Jesus came to heal the diseased. Jesus leaves the synagogue where he taught with authority, as we heard last week from Pastor Gerardo. Jesus taught with with authority, not like the man of the scribes or the teachers of the time. But he taught with authority, thus he had the authority because he was God. And delivered a demon-possessed man. He enters the house of Simon Peter with his four closest and intimate disciples. And Peter's home will be something of a base operations for Jesus when he is in and around Copernicum. He's just using that as a home base to minister around that area. So Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Has anyone here ever had a fever? I have. And I have, we have... A few people in our church right now who are sick with a fever at home right now. Um, Obviously, Peter was married. If you haven't heard that, Peter was married. One of the disciples of Jesus was married. And we have no other details than this. The nature of his illness, of the illness, is not important. The power of the healer is, though. Immediately, they inform Jesus of her illness. And just as quickly, he goes to her, he touches her. And he heals her. Note the simple and immediate sequence of events. Look look at this. He enters the house. They tell him she is sick. He goes to her. He takes her by the hand. He lifts her up. The fever leaves her. And then look at this. She serves them. The one who served her, she begins to serve him. Amen? Something to look at. Again, there are no spells, no incantations or rituals. With compassion and a personal touch, Jesus restores Peter's ailing mother-in-law to full health. She was in bed, sick with a fever, and now she's up and serving Jesus and his disciples. Verse 34 adds that on this particular day, he healed many who were sick with various diseases he healed many the text implies that they kept bringing them to him and with love and with compassion he kept on healing them the sick were lining up around the street corner and he kept healing them cuz he cuz he had love and compassion for them hopefully we have love and compassion for people as well as as followers of Christ amen So I have a theological question. Is there healing in the atonement? Come on, Bible scholars. (laughs) Is there healing in the atonement? Do you think there's healing in Jesus dying on the cross? Maybe, yes, no. (laughs) Let's go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 5. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. If you ever have a moment to look through it and read through it, it's a great chapter to read. And to just it shows us who Jesus was in the Old Testament. So Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, with his stripes we are healed. Amen? In Matthew eight seventeen in the parable and parallel account of these events he even adds from Isaiah fifty three verse four, saying, "Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted." So the answer is yes. There is healing in the atonement. Yes, there is healing for some. It is immediate. But temporary. Because at the end of the day, we all still die. We're all going to die. Every single one of us. Eat right, stay fit, die anyways. (laughs) Go to the gym every day. Watch what you eat, you know? It's not going to keep you from dying. But for all, now listen to this, for all who trust Jesus as Savior and Lord, it is eternal and it is permanent. Amen? So we find this wonderful truth made plain, and let's go to Revelation. Revelation 21, the last book of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 21, verse 4 and 5. If we're there, say, Amen. 21 verse 4 and 5 this is our hope this is what we long for this is what we look for for the future it says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away And he who was seated in the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen? Amen. So, for us who trust Jesus as Savior and Lord, it is eternal and it is permanent. We are ultimately healed from the curse of death and sin. But those who don't and reject the gospel of the the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done on the cross... They will die forever and be separated from God in hell for eternity, which is terrible and sad. So let's go on to uh, Jesus came to heal the diseased in verses 32 to 34. Jesus came to deliver the demonized. Talk about demons, demonized. The fame of Jesus is spreading like a wildfire. Look in verse 28. It's just spreading out. Everybody's hearing about this. This Jesus of Nazareth. No doubt people are aware that he is now in Peter's house and that that he has healed his mother-in-law. Now that the Sabbath has officially ended, sundown, probably around 6 p.m., people begin to show up from everywhere. People are coming from all over the place. And we see in verse 32, they brought to him all. They brought to him all, verse 32. And in verse 33, it says, the whole city was gathered at the door. Now, literally, was the whole city there? No, but just a lot, a lot of people were there. Verse 34, he healed many. So, all of this detail screams of an eyewitness report. Who would be that eyewitness? Who would be the one telling about this happening? Who do you guys think it was from what you've heard the last few sermons? Who wrote the book of, or who would tell who would be telling the story of Mark? From Peter, the Apostle Peter, one of the Jesus' closest disciples. Verse 32 says that, that those brought to him were were of those uh, oppressed by demons. They were oppressed by demons, those whom he were brought to Jesus. Verse 34 says, He cast out many demons. Satan and his minions had once again met the Savior in a spiritual combat. They were right in front of Jesus. And it was no contest. Bring many demons face to face with God's Son and they experience an an immediate and decisive defeat. Because there is no, you can't, they're, they're created by God and they submit to God. The last phrase in verse 34 is instructive. They knew Him. Isn't that interesting? They knew him. Men may be confused as to the identity of Jesus. So men don't know who he is. But it is never so with the demons. They know who Jesus is. They know him and they fear him. What a contrast with the foolish, fallen, and unbelieving humans. Because humans sometimes, who's Jesus? I don't know who he is. But the demons know that he's the son of God. So we should clearly observe that there is a distinction made between those who were sick or those who were oppressed by demons. There's a difference there. Do you guys see that? In verse 32? And sick with various diseases, it says in verse 34. Don't miss what many modern skeptics ignore on paper or, or ignore or paper over. All disease and sickness is the result of sin. Listen to this. All the results, disease and sickness, is the result of sin. But not demon, demonic oppression or activity. Do we get that? Because sometimes in churches, and especially as we see that a lot in Pentecostal churches, they say that every single thing is a demonic thing. This casts out the de- demon of fever. This cast out the demon of this and that and that and that. There's a difference between being sick and disease, and then being demon-possessed. Satan and his demons may inflict physical affliction, but not all physical affliction is demonic in its origin. Let's get that. Let's try to understand that. The ancients were not as naive and gullible, as ignorant and and uninformed as they are sometimes accused of being. They knew the difference of what it is to be demon-possessed and just to be sick. Mark's point is watch the servant serve. That's the point of Mark right here in this is what we're listening what we're reading, what we're seeing. Watch the servant serve, which is Jesus, he's a servant, he's a suffering servant. He healed many who were sick, and he cast out many demons. The kingdom has come in the person of the great and awesome king, and it is moving forward with great speed and success. That makes the statement at the end of verse 34 and later verse 44 all the more amazing. Why does Jesus not permit the demons to speak? Have you guys ever wondered that? As you're reading this? I, I wondered myself that. I was studying. I was like, man, why doesn't Jesus permit the demons to speak? Why later does Jesus tell the leper, and we haven't gone there, but verse 44, he heals the leper and he says... He tells the leper not to say anything to anyone. Why is Jesus trying to hide himself, who he is? Why is he doing that? This raises an important and interesting issue discussed by both the believing and the unbelieving scholars of that are called the, it's called the messianic secret. And James Edwards helps us to see why the question was raised in the first place when he writes, On three occasions, Demons are enjoined to silence. They're told, be quiet. Demons, don't speak. Jesus commands silence after four miracles. One of them is the cleansing of the leper, the raising of a dead girl, the healing of a, dead, of a deaf mute, and the healing of a blind man. So he tells, he, after he does the miracles, he tells them, don't say nothing. Twice the disciples are commanded to silence. Twice Jesus withdraws from clouds to escape detection. He does that. Beyond these explicit admonitions of to secrecy, Mark implies secrecy in other aspects of Jesus' public ministry. But ironically, the commands to silence often results in the opposite. And we read, it says, the more he commanded silence, the more they kept talking about it. And it happened. But why why the secrecy? Why is he trying to hide? What's Jesus doing there? When one considers the historical context, messianic expectations and the nature of how the kingdom came or was going to come and would grow, several observations can be made about the interesting phenomenon. So again, Why did Jesus hide and conceal his messianic, his during his ministry? Why did he hide? What was he trying to to do? And it says to avoid the impression of being a mere miracle worker, a divine man, or a magician, since so many uh, commands to silence accompany a miraculous work. He didn't just try to be, he's not just the healer or the magician, he is God, the God man. Amen. He's trying to avoid unnecessary and unhelpful publicity in order to have more moments of private teaching and and peace with his disciples. He's trying to be close to his disciples. And number three, which I think is the main one, it says to avoid the mistaken idea of the type of of Messiah that he would be. His Messiahship was to be manifested through the service and through suffering. He was the suffering servant. Not sensational display of miracle or miraculous activity, which would excite political messianic fever. He wasn't just a political fever. He was the servant, the suffering servant. Amen? Amen. To express his humility as the suffering servant of the Lord. To inform us that only through the medium of his of faith, ultimately in a crucified and humiliated Jesus of Nazareth his messianship personally would be apprehended only through the cross can we know who jesus who jesus is he also did it to avoid recognition from an undesirable source such as a demon the demons to point to the hostility of the religious and political leadership and to mark clearly jesus his own choice as the as a destined hour of passion he was looking forward to the cross So, the idea that this is a made up, something he's just trying to hide for the sake of being hidden isn't true. He was looking forward to Easter, to the time where he was going to be crucified and he was going to pay for our sins on the cross. And so, his, no, the Messiah's the Messiah secret arose from Jesus himself and his self-conscious identification with what we read in Isaiah, the suffering servant of the Lord and the need to guard his messianic identity from pe- premature and false understandings he was trying not to give them a false understanding of who he was he was the messiah but he was not the kind of messiah the first century world hoped for who were the f- they were looking for a warrior king but Jesus came as a suffering servant he was the kind of messiah that the world indeed the whole world truly and generally and genuinely needed Our greatest need is not the sickness, but sin. Not demons, but death. No, we need a Messiah who would give his life a ransom, a payment for sinners like you and for me. Praise God, amen? Amen. And he sent us that Messiah that we needed in in the Son of Jesus Christ. So I want to end today's message With some, um, with some points. Let's let's go through the first one. God cares about our problem and challenges in this fallen, sin, sick, sin-infested world. He cares about you. If you're going through some pain, He cares about you. Go away with that—that that He loves you and that He, if you hurt, He hurts. God knows we hurt and to suffer. And that sin is a constant reminder of our finite, mortal humanity. We're human beings. We're finite beings. God wants us to know that He has done something to remedy our near hopeless condition by sending Jesus for us on the cross to die and pay for our sins. And like the disease and the demonized, we should run to Him and Him alone. He is our hope. And like Peter's mother-in-law, having been touched and healed by his compassionate hand, we should be quick to serve him and serve others out of grateful gratitude for such a wonderful Savior and such a marvelous salvation. Amen? So we should ask ourselves, how are we serving God and how are we serving His people and the community we're around? And lastly, it was a normal day in the life of Jesus. However, it was anything but normal for those who who encounter and experience His saving power. Amen? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we pray, Lord, that we would be just like Peter's mother-in-law. That we would serve, Lord, as soon as we know, Lord, that what You've done for us on the cross. That You've paid for our sins, Lord. That You've done that amazing work of grace in our lives, Lord. That we didn't deserve, Lord. We were... Hellbound sinners, Lord, yet you reached us by your grace, Lord and saved us by what you've done on the cross. You are the suffering servant, Lord, and you love each one of us who are here, Lord, and you care about all the things we're going through, Lord. And I pray Lord, that you would touch us, Lord, and that you would um, that we would Lord, be healed of any disease that we may have, Lord, but also that we would be um, just appreciative of the sacrifice that you've done on the cross for us, and that we would serve, Lord, be servants of you, Lord, and of your people, Lord. And we pray all this in your son Jesus' mighty name. Amen.